wonderful truth. Uh, this evening in the 6 o'clock service, uh, we will be continuing on. Two weeks ago, on Sunday night, we started a message that had 10 pieces to it. And that was 10 things that robbed the Christian of their spiritual joy. First Sunday night, we got through five. We came back last week to finish, and we got through one. And we planned it that way, as God directed, though we looked last Sunday evening at unresolved conflict in the life of Christian. Tonight, we're coming back with the final four. This is a good month for final fours, right? Tonight, we'll come back and we'll finish out the final four of the things that I believe, scripturally, we can prove rob the Christians of their spiritual joy. Next Sunday night, we'll come back and we'll look at things that we are to put into our Christian lives that bring us spiritual joy. And uh, so we want you to be here and ready for uh, these services. I read a story not too long ago of a construction worker. He arrived at the job and he was working with his partner there and they were doing their portion of the construction. came lunchtime and a young man opened up his lunchbox and got a sandwich out looked at it and said, oh, a meatloaf sandwich. And I uh, said, I just, I don't, I'm, I don't like meatloaf sandwiches. And he came in the next day and same process and brought him to lunch again. And they, he opened up his lunch box and he said, boy, I sure hope I have something different today. And uh, pulled it out, opened up his, unwrapped his sandwich. Oh, meatloaf sandwich again. I, I hate meatloaf sandwiches. And the third day they came back, and yes, you guessed it, the same scenario. He unwraps a sandwich, and he looked at the fellow that was working with him. He said, I sure hope to goodness this isn't a meatloaf sandwich today. And he opened the meatloaf sandwich, or opened the sandwich, and it was a meatloaf sandwich. And the guy looked at him, and he said, well, why don't you tell your wife to quit packing you meatloaf sandwiches? And he said, I'm not married. I don't have a wife. He said, well, then tell your mom to quit packing you meatloaf sandwiches. He said, my mom doesn't pack my lunch. I pack my own lunch. He said, preacher, what in the world are you saying? Sometimes the places that we arrive in our lives is our own fault. We have access to change things. Now, a lot of the message this morning is going to be spent in a passage of Scripture that is review, and we've been there before, but I need to draw it out in order to get to where we want to be with looking at this, and I'm not going to have you raise your hand or verbally say, but how many of us in this room today would, would say we'd like to have a better life? We want more out of life. We want something different. We don't want meatloaf every day, right? We're going to look at some of those things. We're going to look at a two-step process that intertwines others and each other with, with this and ourselves. And we're looking at the two-step two process, and that is making plans and having faith. I want you to find your place in 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 1 through verse 7. And all of this is sort of preliminary to where we'll get about halfway through the message time this morning. And in the end, there are things to take note of in the beginning. They're valuable and they're teachable. But in the end, I want to review very quickly. I want to give you some things this morning that will help us, that will help us to have steps to a better life. I know that the last few Sunday mornings we have preached judgment messages about the judgment of God, but the fact with both of them that we, 
we painted it with as God judges because he loves. Many of us in this room, we, we want something better. We want something more. And God wants us to have more. He wants to bless us. And I'm not saying God wants us all to be extremely wealthy. And here's what I found about wealth. There's a lot more people that walk away from God for prosperity than they do for poverty. When we're prosperous, we think we have it all under control. And we think we do for ourselves. Have you ever wondered why it's more difficult to reach a wealthy person with the gospel of Christ than it is a person in poverty? Because in our wealth, in affluence, in blessing, we often forget where the blessing comes from. Let's read together. Stand, if you would, please. We'll read seven verses. 2 Kings chapter 4, a story that is familiar to us but bears great teaching. Now there cried a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets unto Elisha, saying, Thy servant, my husband, is dead. And thou knowest that thy servant did fear the Lord. And the creditor is come to take unto him my two sons to be bondmen. And Elisha said unto her, What shall I do for thee? Tell me what thou hast in thy house. And she said, Thy handman, handmaid hath not anything in the house save a pot of oil. Then he said, Go, borrow thee vessels abroad of all thy neighbors and empty vessels. Borrow not a few. And when thou art come in, thou shalt shut the door upon thee and upon thy sons and shalt pour out into all the vessels and thou shalt set aside that which is full. So... She went from him and shut the door upon her and her, on her sons and brought the vessels to her and she poured out. And it came to pass when the vessels were full that she said unto her sons, bring me yet another vessel. And he said unto her, there's not a vessel more. And the oil stayed. Then she came and told the man of God and he said, go sell the oil, pay the debt and live thou and thy children on the rest. Again, we're focusing this morning on this, living a better life, living a better life. Let's pray together. Father, help us please to understand the concepts and the principles of scripture. There is a biblical scriptural process by which you desire to bless us. There's a world that claims a different prosperity, but help us to see the scriptural biblical means by which we attain a better life. Teach us this hour. Please use me to be able to get across the words and the message of your word. And I'll be humbled and I'll thank you for the opportunity to do so. Now, hush our hearts and minds and bring our attention solely to you. May everything that we've heard so far this morning be drawing our attention to the person of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated if you would, please. We have been here before. And I want us to review quickly some things about this passage of Scripture. We find a mother who is in desperation. We find a story that is painted that she is in despair. And I want you to know this about her and about you and I. There's no one in despair that God does not know where you are. 
He knows exactly where this woman is. He knows what's happening in her life. Let's rehearse, if we may, for a few moments exactly her position so that when we get to these things that can help us to have a better life, we understand how they were given to us in Scripture. God knows our problem. So what's her problem? First of all, there was despair in her house. And notice the word here, cried. There are all sorts of different crying. I've seen people that will cry a soft cry and shed a soft tear. And then I've seen people that uh, are crying uncontrollably. We basically have one word in our grammar that we put that under, and we put it under crying. In the book of Revelation, it says, in heaven there will be no more crying and there will be no more tears. The tears is that soft, gentle tear that flows down from emotion from the side of your face. When it says there will be no more crying, that's the heartbroken grief. And what we find in this is not a woman who is crying a gentle tear. This isn't a soft, easy thing. But this word cry is an uncontrollable moan. To shriek out in grief. This woman is in despair in her family. But I want you to notice why she's in despair. Why is her heart crushed? Why is her cry so loud? First of all, we find this in the death of her husband. It points out in this particular scripture that her husband was a servant of Elisha, and it was her husband. He was one of the sons of the school of prophets. He was training for ministry. But regardless of who he was, here the love of her life, her husband, the father of her children, her provider, the one who gives her strength, her leader. The love of her life is gone. And we have ladies in our church today who are widow ladies and they've lost their husband. And they, they above anybody else that's reading this passage with us this morning, understand and know a little bit about what it is to lose the husband. She is crying mournfully, loudly. She's in despair because her husband is dead. Now stop and think what all that entails. Because her husband has died, they have lost the income for the family. And so she is crying in despair. She's crying because of death in her family. And then she's crying because of debt in her family. The husband is gone. The income is gone. There's not a lot left. The creditors are coming to take her sons as bond slaves. The book of Leviticus tells us that this by law was a legal thing to do. If you are in such debt that you could not repay it, they could take the husbands or the sons and they would be enslaved as bondsmen until that debt were repaid. When you've worked it off in time, when you've worked through all of the process and the debt is paid, usually with interest, then you would receive your freedom back. What we know here is that the creditors are coming. It's not just a thing of phone calls. Now it's a thing that they are coming. They're coming to take her sons. And so she's in despair. There's been death. There's been death. And then notice this. There's still devotion in her family. Though she's at a time, the lowest that you would think, and despair and the word cry again, that uncontrollable sobbing cry because of all that's happening, what does she do? Does the Bible say to us in this passage of Scripture that she ran to her family? The Bible doesn't say that she went to her, her husband's family and said, listen, 
your son, my husband, has died. I don't have means to provide for myself. You're going to have to help. Doesn't go to the family. Doesn't go to friends and neighbors. Doesn't publicize the need. And this is where oftentimes those that have need fail. You see, she understood, in a spiritual sense, God the provider. <clears throat> she doesn't go to family. She doesn't go to friends. She doesn't go to neighbors. She doesn't look to the government. She doesn't feel as if she's entitled. Who does she go to? She goes to Elisha, the prophet. Her husband has now been training for ministry, and she still held firm in her grip of faith as she approaches him about what can happen. There are some reasons in this verse that we know there's some lessons in this verse that we, we don't want to miss this morning. Here's one thing I, don't, I want you to make sure that you understand today. In the blink of an eye, you and I could be in the same position that she's in. In the blink of an eye, how long would it take financially to lose the provider of the home? How long would it take for our finances and our debt to be more than we could bear? How long would it take for the despair, the grief of loss? Every person in this room in the blink of an eye. I'm above that. I prepared for that. No, you haven't. I have not been in this place, but I know so many people that have. In the blink of an eye, when the doctor enters the room and said the test results are in, the blood counts are back, the MRI reveals you have cancer. Your life just changed. And can I tell you this? It changed forever. It didn't just change until they get it out. I've talked to a lot of people who God has healed. You say, Pastor, it was the surgery, it was the doctors. It was the doctors and the surgery that came from the heart and mind of God. As Brother Knapp prayed for Mrs. Coltrane last week, he prayed for her doctors to treat her medically. Remember what he said? God, you're the healer. That one word. And you may come back, and I know I was talking to Mary Martin this morning, and her treatment start up the 25th or 28th. And starts again every day for the radiation. Continue to pray for her through all of that process. Now we can get, after her radiation is over, they could do tests and they can come back and tell her this, Mary, it's all gone. Every cell is gone. And the effects of the medication can leave her body. New life, new cells form. Her hair comes back and her life goes on. But can I tell you something? Forever and ever on this earth, in the back of her mind. When she has an ache, or when she has a pain, or when she has something happen, do you know what she's going to think? I wonder. You see, that one word can change your life. I, suffice to say in our time this morning, every one of us in here are subject to despair. 
Every one of us in here, the flesh and the devil, are going to tell us God doesn't see and know what you're going through. Every one of us are going to have that happen. And then the third lesson is this, that our problems may appear to be insurmountable, but our problems to God are opportunities. They're opportunities in disguise. Number one, God knows about your problem. Number two, and we find this in verse two to four, God releases our potential. You know the problem with the guy that had a lunch meat sandwich every day? A a meatloaf sandwich every day? He packed it himself. It was his doing. Notice God releases our potential. There's two things that I see in reading through this scripture that God did. First of all, God erased her faith, and then God expanded her faith. She, like some of us this morning, she had faith, but if the, the more we dig into her life, the more we see faith in self. And first of all, God had to bring her to her knees, so to speak, to understand you can't have faith in yourself. Can I tell you two people not to trust? Don't trust man. Number two, don't trust yourself. Lean not into thy own understanding. And God had to erase all faith that she had in herself before he could expand her faith in him. Because God is going to release potential. Notice in verse number two how God erases her faith. Elisha asked two questions here. What do you need and what do you have? This woman was, first of all, she had to see the size of her need. She had to admit what it was and it was a great need. And as long as we think that we can handle our problem, we will try to handle it and not give it to God. What she has done is she has had her faith erased and she comes to the point that she comes to Elisha, she's coming to the man of God, in essence, she's coming to God and saying, God, life is more than I can bear. I can't do anything. And as long as we try to handle things on our own, we're living by faith in ourselves. God does this. He brings us to the place of erasing our faith in ourselves so that we build our faith in Him. A prime example of this is in the book of Joshua, chapter number 7, the battle of Ahi. Israel has just fought a major battle in Jericho, and they have won. It was a weird battle, strange tactics, but led by God. Well, if I'd been the general, I sure wouldn't have thought of the tactics that overcame Jericho. But God had. They sought God. They followed God. They walked with God just like God said for them to do, and they had a major victory. You know where that victory went? To their head. Look what we did. And we find just a few verses later that they go up against a puny little army that by all means they should have overcome. They go into battle without consulting God. There is no mark of they sought the Lord to go to battle with them. They went in by themselves and they lost a small, puny, insignificant battle in an insignificant city. 
So we see that God erases our faith, and we've asked, he asked two questions. What do you need? What do you have? Now, how does God expand our faith? God erased her faith in herself and her own ability. She had to come to the understanding there's nothing she could do. And in verse number 2, he expands her or our faith personally. He asked her this question. Notice how the question is posed. What hast thou in the house? What do you have right now? And you know what? In her eyes, it sure didn't look like much. She said, just this pot of oil. You know, there's not a man in here this morning who I believe, if we're truthful, would say, when I die, I don't want to leave anything. We ought to want to leave at least, we may not leave people wealthy, but we should want to leave enough to care for our wife and our children. I think that was this man's place. But notice what she said. He said, what do you have in the house? And she said, and, and I believe in a small way. And by that, by that, what I'm trying to say is, I believe when she says, I just had this pot of oil. She didn't say it with excitement or enthusiasm. She didn't say it with great joy. All I have is this pot, and the word pot, and, and if you bring it through uh, Scripture in time, it, it has the thought of a flask, a flask of oil. What we believe this is, is her husband, who was one of the sons of the prophet training for ministry, had a flask of oil that was used more than likely in ministry in the anointing of people with oil. We read of Samuel doing that. You know what people leave to you? You often treasure what do you have? I just, I just have this flask of oil, this insignificant flask. But understand this, God has promised us, and God clings to us. He, he has promised us this. He's going to hear our prayers. And he's promised us this. He will answer our prayers. You may not get the answer you want. Because everything that we pray is not good for us. I stopped the other day. The other evening, Rim rode home with me after Awana. And he said, hey, Pop, can we stop and get a donut? I said, okay, we'll stop and get a donut. So we stopped at the gas station. I want this one and this one and this one. I said, son, you said a donut. You didn't say a dozen donuts. And, and here's his thought, okay? Follow me. There were these donuts laid out. You've bought gas station donuts. You know what they are. They're laid out on this shelf. But on the top of the shelf is a cup. And it has donut holes in it. And I told him, you can only have one donut. Well, Pop, can I have those? That's what we do to the Lord sometimes. So he looked at, I held the cup down, and he thought, oh, there's a bunch of donuts in here. Now, do you realize, I think you're smart enough to know, there's really more donut in a donut than there is in that little cup of donuts. But broken down into smaller pieces. 
God has promised to hear our prayer. God has promised to answer our prayer. Not always the way we ask. Listen, I knew it was not good for him to have two donuts before bed. Because if he had two donuts before bed, there would be no bed. Next Sunday morning, we're having coffee and donuts for the adults. And we're going to cut the temperature in the auditorium down to about 52. Preacher, why? Because sugar does for you different than it does for Remington. He's like a ping pong ball when he gets sugar in him. But you donut up some of the men in this auditorium and they're going to be sleeping next Sunday morning. Why would I not get him a whole day? I know it's not good for him. But, oh Paul, he asked you for them. But I know it's not good. I'll give him what I believe is good. And then he promised to supply for us all of our needs. Notice, he expands her faith personally with her. But then he expands the faith publicly. She, she has to go out into the community. She is being a witness now before the neighbors. Imagine she comes to the door of the neighbor's house. Do you have any empty vessels I could use? Can you imagine the neighbor's poor lady? Her husband is dead. She has no means to take care of herself. They're coming to take her sons because she can't pay her debts. And she's going to be alone again. And now she's asking me for empty vessels. What would she need empty vessels for? Now, they may be able to easily understand why she's asking them for a cup of sugar or a cup of flour. But have you ever had a neighbor come over and say, do you have any empty vessels? Do you have an empty cup I could borrow? That's what she's doing. Her life suddenly becomes a billboard. And all of these people are seeing what's happening, and eventually it becomes a billboard of God's grace for her. He expands her faith personally. He expands her faith publicly in front of the neighbors, and then he, in verse 4 and 5, expands her faith privately. The Bible says that Elisha instructed her, you take your sons and you go home, and you shut the doors. Now, every parent, I want you to listen to me for a minute. These kids already understood the despair their mother was in. They knew that they had gone without. She brings them into the house and shuts the door. They've been going door to door collecting empty vessels. They're getting ready to learn a lesson that they could only learn at home. For every parent in here, can I say this? There are lessons, faith-building lessons that young people will only learn at home. Not in the church, not in the school, not in Sunday school or junior church or Awanas. This mother brings her boys in. Don't you know they were trying to figure out what in the world is mom doing? They ask the same questions that young people ask today. Has mom gone off her rocker? What is she thinking? 
I wonder if she didn't say something like, I don't have all the answers. But you've got to trust me, God is getting ready to do something supernatural. I just believe that God's going to do something for us, and I can't explain to you how, but I want you to be alert. I want you to be watching, boys. Elisha says God's going to do something. And the Scripture, they have the Old Testament, but God promised us. And now we've got to stand still and see what He's going to do. And they learned that God was all-powerful. Can you imagine now as she starts saying, bring me one of those vessels, and she takes that small flask of oil, and I'll use this, and she begins to pour. And he takes it, and another vessel, bring me another one, bring me another one. And time upon time and time. And here's what the Scripture said, borrow not a few. You wouldn't say it this, that way. Here's what scriptures say. Borrow as much. I've got to be careful how I say this one. Borrow as much as you can. Borrow as many vessels as you possibly can get. And they watched. And I can't help. I don't know if you've ever gotten emotional over seeing God's blessings. And in a moment of despair, God has acted on your part and you've seen it. Can you imagine 50 vessels in? Oil was the currency of the day. It was used for cooking. It was used for heating. It was used for lighting. It was used if you had oil, you had means. And after about five, she oh, thank the Lord. We can eat this week. Praise the Lord, I, I, I can pay for our land payment for this month. And I can pay this off. And she keeps pouring and pouring and pouring. And listen, suddenly she finds herself pouring, let's paraphrase, she's pouring out the college fund. She's not pouring for today. She's not pouring for tomorrow. She's pouring far in advance. And I can't but help but imagine she's saying, boys, look at this. Boys, do you, do you see what's happening? Do you know every little boy is inquisitive? Mama, let me see that. You've poured all of that out. And it's still got the same oil in it that... Daddy left. I wonder if that daddy had not prayed in his lifetime. God, please, let me leave what will take care. We've got to continue moving on this morning. The faith made a difference. Faith makes a difference in all of our lives. The Apostle Paul, on the road to Damascus, fell on his knees when the Lord spoke to him. And he said this, Lord, who art thou? You're more powerful than me, but who art thou? But when we come to, that's in Acts, when we come to Ephesians chapter 3, Paul says this, Now unto him that is able to do abundantly above all that we ask or think, 
according to the power that worketh in us, according to the glory in the church of Christ by Jesus throughout all ages, the world without it. You see what happened? Paul figured it out. He went from Lord who art thou to he who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above. Number three is found in verse five through seven. God gives our provision. God gave her provision. She began that day with nothing and she ends that day with everything. Verse number five, we see the lesson of God's provision. God will do exactly what he has promised us that he would do. Why is it that we doubt that? He'll do no less than he promised us that he'll do. In verse number six, there's the limit of God's provision. There's the lesson of God's provision that she learned. Then there's the limit of God's provision that she learned. The oil flowed until the vessels ran out. Let me ask you this. What hindered the flow of oil? The oil never wrote, it, it never went away. It was there. It was the vessels. If she'd have had five more vessels, the oil would have filled them. If she had a hundred more vessels, the oil would have filled them. If she had a thousand more vessels, the oil would have filled them. But when she ran out of vessels, the Bible says this, and the oil stayed. There's a sufficiency to that. I have shared with you before about the guys that were out fishing. They were trout fishing. A guy would catch a fish, and one guy over here was watching, and his friend would take the ruler out, and he'd measure the fish. And he said, I watched him. He said he caught a 14-inch trout. And he threw it back in the water. And he caught an 8-inch trout, and he kept it. And he caught a 10-inch trout, and he threw it in the water. He caught an 8-inch trout, and he kept it. He said, I watched him do it all day long. He said, every good fish, every large fish, he threw back. He said, I couldn't help it any longer. I couldn't hold it any longer. I said, I asked him, why is it? That all the good fish you throw back and you're keeping the eight-inch fish. He said, my frying pan's only eight inches. Sort of limits. What limited her access? What limited the oil? The oil was limited only by the vessels. And can I tell you this? That vessel is your faith. What limits God pouring out blessings on us? Our vessel Notice what the scripture said when Elisha sent her. He said this, borrow not a few. And some of us are keeping only the small things of God. We need to expand ourselves. We need to expand the vessel that God can help us. Now notice this, the largeness of his provision. That day, all of her debts were settled. What did that do? It took care of the past. Everything from before was gone. All the funeral debt was gone. Medical debt, gone. All of the debt that had occurred, it's all gone. Yesterday is done away with. All of those debts are settled. Her desires for today, meat for today, food for today, clothing for growing boys, a house, a roof over us, settled for today. All that we need to, all of yesterday is canceled out, it's paid. Today is paid for. And then it talked about the supply for her dependents. And that's why I say on those last ones that she's pouring, she's pouring the college fund. She's pouring tomorrow. Now all of that is introduction this morning to get to these things. 
I'm not a prosperity preacher by the means that so many evangelists on TV preach prosperity today. Or else I would say to you, I want you to plant a seed faith today. And I'd tell you that the Lord is talking to me right now and He said that every one of you should take out your credit card and plant a $10,000 seed faith in the church. Get it. Modern day people preaching prosperity are preaching that similar message. The Bible preaches God's, it teaches prosperity for God's people in a biblical way. Well, preacher, I want a better life. This lady wanted a better life. How did she get there? Take down these things if you would. They're practical, they're quick. She presents herself here and she, it required her to participate. It required her to seek help. It required her own personal effort. It required privacy. But here are the, here are the notes. To live a better life, you first of all have to quit making excuses. You have to quit making excuses. We don't find any excuses that were made with her, but we hear excuses today. My finances are in such a way that I will never. My education is lacking. I'll never be better. My life is in such a shambles. It can never get better. Quit making excuses. If you want to have a better life, quit making excuses. Number two, establish relationships. This woman, in order to borrow vessels, had to go to the neighbors. Like it or not, disagree with me or not, the Bible created mankind as social beings. Inside and outside of marriage. Do you remember what God said about Adam? After he created everything, he looked at Adam and he looked at Adam and he didn't say it was good. Here's what he said. It is not good that man should be alone. So he made for him a help me. And we understand that's the marriage relationship. But understand please, all the way through scripture we're taught this. We need each other. We need each other. We may say, well I don't need to go to church. I don't need church people. You do if you're a Christian. You may, you may be here this morning, you say this, well, I don't need to go to church. You may not, I think this is wrong, but you may. You may be in such a spiritual plane that you may not need to be in church. Your need to be in church may be dependent on somebody else looking at you. One, quit making excuses. Two, Develop relationships and friendships. That means family, friends, neighbors. Number three, there must be a private place. There must be a private place. And in that private place, there has to be a plan. We read from the scripture, said, and it came to pass when the vessels were full, that she said unto her husband, bring me yet a vessel. And he said unto her, there's not a vessel more, and the oil stayed. Then what did the prophet, what did Elisha say? Then she came and told the man of God. Can you imagine how she told him? You know, when she first appears, she's in despair and crying a loud cry, uncontrollable cry. And now she comes back to him and said, you won't believe what happened. And Elisha had to say, well, yeah, I would believe what happened, but tell me what happened. 
And we poured and we poured and we poured. Now we have all this oil. Here was his remark. Go and sell the oil. One, pay your debt. Two, and live. Pay your debt and live thou and thy children of the rest. The plan had reached fulfillment. If making and following plans are successful, then why aren't we making plans? I think the answer sometimes is quite simple because we have a lack of faith and a fear of failure. We have a lack of faith and a fear. I read an article a couple years back on the shores of North Carolina there were 12 shark attacks. And they were interviewing people who said this, I will never step foot in the ocean again. Now, the article went on to say that you have a 1 in 3,700,000 chance of being attacked by a shark when you go in the ocean. They said, but the same people did not say, they didn't say, I, I'm not going to get in a car when you have a 1 in 84 chance of being involved in an accident. Or you have a 1 in 63 chance of getting the flu or being one of the 2,600 Americans a year who are hurt by an air freshener, or the 43,000 Americans a year who are injured in the bathroom. But you say, preacher, what, what do you say? These people said, we're never going back in the ocean again. I don't mind that statement. I wouldn't have a hard time saying I'll never go in the ocean again, but their reasoning, why weren't they going back in the ocean again? Fear. Fear. Statistics say very minimal chance of that happening. And a lot of times we don't make plans because we have a lack of faith and we fear failure. Matthew chapter 13, verse 57 and 58, they were offended by him or in him, but Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, save in his own country, his own house. Now listen to this. And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. You know, I said last week, the same God of the Old Testament is God today. The same Jesus that walked the earth in the New Testament and all the miracles that were performed through his power, he still has that power today. Why do we not see things? Why do we not see great and marvelous works? Why do we not see as many wonderful things? Is it that Christ no longer has power? Or is it that we are so full of unbelief that we hinder his power? Number five... <clears throat> And striving for a better life, you have to overcome the victim mentality. You have to overcome the victim mentality and have the victorious mentality. They must put their faith, we must put our faith in the proper place and not allow our minds to dwell in fear. Stories told of a chemical company that caught fire. The president of the chemical company was on site. The fire was raging. There was a, a vault, a safe, in the middle of that chemical company. And he came to the fire department. He said, I'm going to give a $50,000 reward to anybody who can save that area 
because all, all of our patterns and all of everything to make the chemicals for all the companies that we work for, it's in that vault. If we lose that vault, we lose everything. An hour later, the flames, the fire is still out of control. He goes back and he said, listen, I'm willing $100,000 to the fire engine that can save that. Well, they heard some rumblings. It was in a small town setting and larger towns had come. No, it was a chemical company and they'd sent big ladders and big trucks and big all of that. And suddenly they, they hear coming the local volunteer fire department on their small, rickety little truck. Interesting thing that every man that manned the volunteer fire truck that day was 65 years and older. The truck came through the gate to the chemical place. Firefighters were all over doing this. A large garage door that was already opened up. And the volunteer fire company drove right into the garage door that was open. Parked their truck right in the middle. Got out and started attacking the fire. Within an hour, the fire had been contained. The president of the company came over and he said, I'm so impressed by what you did and what you accomplished for our company that I'm going to write a check for $200,000 to your fire department for what you did. And they were happy over it, rejoicing, receiving it. And he said, well, what are you going to do with the money? And the guy said, well, the first thing we're going to do is fix the brakes on that fire truck. <laughs> Too many people have the victim mentality. Why did Christ come for the Christian? I am come that you might have life and that you might have a little of it. That you might have it more abundantly. Let me give you number six and seven. We've got to finish up. Number six, those that seek a better life had to plant seed. And watch for development. Plant seed and watch for development. You won't plant seed today and have a garden tomorrow. We wish it would happen that way. But there's an expected time of maturity. So don't plant seed today and live like you want to tomorrow and expect that same seed to come to maturity later on without being choked. You have to plant seed every day. Plant seed and watch for the development. Number seven, those who are seeking a better life must approach God with the belief that He is able to give them a better life. Oh, no, He won't. God can't, God won't. Listen, He wants to. He desires with everything that is in him to give us life more abundant. He says that he has to give us above what we can ask or think. He says this to you and I, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither hath entered the heart of man the things that God hath prepared for those that love him got them already. I believe we're going to get to heaven one day and stand before God 
We're going to see all these things. And we may very well ask, what are all these things? God said, that's what you could have had. That's what you could have had. That's the life you could have lived if you'd lived a scriptural life. Let's bow our heads, please. Heads bowed, eyes closed. We'll have a word of prayer and a verse of invitation this morning. Don't answer me with raised hand or anything else. How many...